Hey, uh, how you doing? It's well, we're, we're, we're just after the Iowa caucuses here, and uh, it's a very bright and clear day in Washington, D.C., and my lungs are a little better. I spent last night absorbed in Saltburn, this astonishing new movie, which I recommend to anyone who's interested in, well, I don't know why you'd be interested in this movie. Uh, it's, it's a sort of weird revisiting of Brideshead Revisited. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Brideshead Gonzo. It's Brideshead where Charles Ryder ends up actually going after the family rather than becoming a, a scion of it and, and, is, and is about as far from Catholicism and even more as you could possibly imagine. But it brought back to me a huge amount of my own feelings about Oxford, about showing up as a scholarship boy and being surrounded by all these Etonians and, and all these people with country houses and a whole way of speaking and living that I didn't understand. And it's a sort of class revenge fantasy as well. I, I really was taken with this movie. Not since I think the Banshees of Inishirin have I been so kind of affected by something, simply because it was so close to the bone, I guess, is what. And actually there's scenes in it where I can see the rooms that I actually lived in at Oxford, which brought back a lot. Oxford was, for me, a whole world. It was the most amazing experience I ever had, really, and, and loved it so much. I think I have forced myself to be distant from it for quite a while because it's so seductive. It's such a beautiful, wonderful place. Anyway, thank you again for subscribing. I, I, I shouldn't do this every week, but I will do every week. We are at a record. Thank you so much for making us the record we've ever had of, of readers and, and listeners. And we are intensely grateful for your support. And I am intensely grateful that one of my I don't know, heroes really in political journalism and in media and also as simply someone who knows a vast amount of, of useless shit about, about American politics and history. Jeff Greenfield, and he's a TV journalist whom you must certainly know, an author, writes about politics, media and the culture. And he's been a senior political correspondent for CBS, a senior analyst for CNN where he was for many years and a political and media analyst for ABC News, and he's authored or co-authored 13 books, including If Kennedy Lived and When Gore Beat Bush. Uh, just a, a little flavor of what's coming up. We have Jonathan Friedland on anti-Semitism and the left, on Gaza and British politics, a little introduction to the next Prime Minister, Keir Starmer of Great Britain. That's coming up next week. We have Justin Brierley on his book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, and we have Nate Silver coming on to tell about the 2024 race. And Christian Wyman, the astonishing poet, and Christian, who is, is coming on to talk about his latest book and on the general question of resisting despair, even if you have, like he has, a very, very tough medical diagnosis. My old friend and buddy and roommate Jeffrey Rosen is coming on to talk about the pursuit of happiness and the founders and Abigail Schreier on why the cult of therapy harms children. And then the great and only George Will coming to talk. Well, we'll talk about whatever we feel like talking about, but probably conservatism, Trump, and, and life in general. But Jeff, this week, thank you so much for coming on. You look fantastic. You're in Santa Barbara right now. Is that true? 
I am dispatched myself from New York because my wife is from here and she'd spent 10 years with me in New York and said, I've really got to go home. So I had a choice between being single in New York or happily married in Santa Barbara. And here I am. Santa Barbara is unbelievably beautiful. I mean, it is like this pristine, beautiful place. It's like, for me, it's the ideal California city town. Except for the floods and the fires and the... They almost destroyed this town about five years ago. It is a very... It's an ex- obviously it's a culture shock to have spent my life in Manhattan and then be here. One of the things I tell people is out here that when a motorist waves to you, they use all their fingers, which is very different from New York. <laughs> um, it's a nice place. <laughs> Jeff, I always ask this, so let's ask you. How did you get into politics? How did you become the first figure out this is what you wanted to do with your life? If I tell you it was when I was nine years old and it was because of the New York Yankees, take, take it that's enough of a what to explain. So Please. briefly, I spent my summers with my mom and my grandfather's cottage outside New York. My dad would come up on the weekends and we didn't have TV. So we had a radio, I think one. And I would listen to the Yankee game, which in those days were all in the daytime. And one day my mom said, you can't have the radio today. Why not? Well, I'm listening to the Republican convention. What's that? She briefly tried to describe to me. Now, as it turns out, the 1952 Republican convention was one of the most contentious Pier 6 brawls of the convention ever. There were literally fistfights on the floor, the Eisenhower Taft delegations. I just found all I didn't know what this was, but I found it so gripping that when the Democrats had their convention, I said to my my mom, you know, as soon as I wake up, you got to tell me who won and made them on election night. Let me stay up late because I'd known what happened in 1948 brief, in a kind of, well, it's exciting. Well, Eisenhower won it by seven o'clock at night. My parents said, you have to go to sleep. That's it, or whatever the time was. Literally from then on in, I found politics just a fascinating realm. And the older I got, the more I realized this was something that absolutely, not just, it kind of compelled me because it was farce, it was high drama, it was tragedy, it was ridiculous, and then also it, it, it had to do with the most essential questions you ask about a society. War, peace, fairness, unfairness. Obviously the civil rights movement, was, you know, as I got older, was a compelling force. So that's what got me interested. And then through, through a stroke of luck, I think is the best way to put it, Right after law school, I wound up in the Senate office of Robert Kennedy. And then the last three months of his life, because the ethics rules were very different then, he basically moved a lot of us over to the campaign. And so at the tender age of 24, I was riding around on a campaign plane and a presidential campaign, and it just stuck. I mean, I worked in politics for several years, and then I realized you can't both do politics and write about it. At least I couldn't. The conflict is too great. So I I was working for a consulting firm and doing, it was pretty lucrative. And I said to my boss, the legendary Dave Garth, I I, I can't do this anymore. I've got to strike out. And and from then on, it was writing. And through another accident, I wound up on television. It was never my career path. I don't look like a network correspondent. I don't don't know. You have a, you you, you know, don't don't run yourself down, Jeff. I think you have a kind of handsome... At 80 years old, you have a better head of hair than, 
than yeah, I, I have know you're very, with my twenties. I'll, I'll be glad to lend you some if I could possibly <laughs> your lend lease program or something or care package. <laughs> so politics has always compelled me, and then I began to read backwards. I began to read into the history. One of the things I did when I was in college, in those days, you had to go into the stacks of a library and get physical copies. I would get copies of Life magazine from the past to read about how they covered campaigns, uh, you know, back in the th Roosevelt and Truman and Eisen, all that stuff that I had obviously known firsthand knowledge of. And that was a real help mm. um, because I've always thought that one of the one of the many sins of political journalism is they kind of assume that everything started the day before yesterday. And so there's no there's no sense of history as to, well, to use the old Sesame Street song, you know, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things is like the other. Have we seen this phenomenon before? Is it something radically different? But to know the answers to those questions, you kind of, I think, have to be pretty well rooted in the past. And the other thing I'll say, which has produced a couple of alternate history works and novels, is I'm always fascinated by the contingency of, I mean, it's all, it's all life. But in politics, you know, we go back again and again and again, and the tiniest little thing changed an election which changed history. Well, deciding uh, on the campaign that you were on to go through the kitchen well, in that hotel is perhaps the most dramatic example. What was your, where were you when that actually happened? I was upstairs in the Ambassador Hotel in a suite with some of, you know, Kennedy's supporters and aides, ready to go to a victory party at a place called The Factory, which was a very trendy 60s place. We were really about to split when the, we, uh, we found out that, in fact, you know, he'd been shot. Um, and you're, you're, you're right. I wrote one of my alternate history books includes a long section on, on what would have happened if Bobby, if Bobby Kennedy had survived the assassination. I mean, that was therapy for me. I'd spent for 40 years, people asked me that question and I always said, I, I have no idea. And then one day I learned something about how Richard Daly would probably have backed Kennedy after California. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. Look at look at what that would have meant. No riots in Chicago, you know, a whole different approach. And it, and I was off and running. And I then looked back at other events. I mean, I, the whole book about John Kennedy surviving is based on on the notion that the rain didn't stop, which in fact it did, and they took the bubble top off. Rain keeps right. going, the bubble top stays on, and maybe you know he survives. So there's all of these, and they're not always life and death. I mean, I. I think if Jerry Ford in 1976, when given the chance to correct his Soviet domination answer, had said, oh, I don't, of course they're dominating militarily. I know that. I'm the commander in chief, for God's sakes. I'm talking about the spiritual domination. Probably would have been enough to change the, the outcome of that election. And if Ford is elected in 76, you probably don't have Reagan. Right. That's it is. the kind of... That's what I, that, I mean, to be honest with you, that's what I, that's the one thing that keeps my hope alive right now is that something can happen. Anything can happen in history. But I want to get back to the, one of the first things you said, which you talked about listening to the 1952 convention, this extraordinarily rambunctious, violent, almost yeah. uh, crazy and all the passionate rationality. And I think one thing that a lot of us feel today is that are we going through something new? Is, is what we're seeing out there? unprecedented, that this, this threat to democracy, 
the, the nature of this candidacy of Trump. Is this really something unprecedented in, in a way that many of us feel it is? Or is it just because we've lost perspective on how crazy the past was as well? No, I think this is unprecedented. I mean, you can find strains in the past, you know, all kinds. Um, you know, there's a, a Huey Long strain. Right. There's a Pat Buchanan strain. Pat Buchanan actually ran Trump's campaign with no money and with a little more intellectual heft. A considerably um, more intellectual heft. Pat Buchanan yeah, yeah. is one of the smartest people I've, I've ever met. And there's a McCarthy, McCarthyism strain where the respectable Republicans like Robert Taft said, yeah, he's he's a whack job, but he's helping us politically. So let's let's stay with him. And that happened until until he took on President Eisenhower and was defenestrated. So you can find there's a Tea Party strain, and that's an important one. The the, the where it's not a Republican movement, it's a populist movement with distrust of all institutions. I mean, large ones. But the degree to which um, the Republican Party has been wholly taken over by Trump, uh, the degree to which his supporters are, appear to be immune to pretty much any argument, that's different. You know, when, when, the, when, the, when the tapes came out at Watergate, and even before that, a lot of Republicans, you know, it was a gradual process where they said, oh, uh, 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 can't keep him there. You know, I look at people who, at least intellectually, have got to have some serious chops. Newt Gingrich, Ted Cruz, and these are not dumb people, but the degree to which they, you know, just kind of brush off these pesky little details astonishes me. And I, I mean, it, that I think we have not seen. We've always used to say about American threats to American pluralism, democracy, this country bends, it doesn't break. I hope that's still true. We're certainly testing the yeah. limits of that. What is it about Trump that has made this possible? I, let me throw out a couple of thoughts I have about it, which is that, is that part of it is, is, at least observing it just anthropologically, kind of religious. And the interaction of religion and politics, especially among evangelicals, and especially I saw this morning in Tom Edsel's piece, so the, the, the Pentecostal evangelicals, around this figure has made him a, a sort of almost an almost God-given instrument to change the establishment or to wreck the Yeah, it's not almost, by the way. I mean, literally, people say at rallies, God sent Trump to save America. There's, and they, there's they, a, they did that parody of God made a farmer where it's God made Trump. And I think part of it was like of a joke because with Trump, you know, part of the deal is some of what he says is really dangerous and frightening. And some of it he clearly is playing. He's trolling. You know, he wants to he wants to see how much of a of a gut reaction explosion. Of the other day, the other day he said four more years and maybe beyond. Yeah. Just no need to do that. Uh, so, but this is, doesn't this get to the sort of thing that I'm, we're all grappling with is how seriously then do we take him? Is he, is he a farce in a way? Is he, is he tragedy repeated as farce? Is he, is he genuinely a terrible threat? Because I think what people are focused on right now is they say, well, the members of the base would say, look, he was already president for four years. We're still here. 
Nothing really happened. Why are you yeah. why do you think this democracy thing is gonna he's gonna break democracy when we've already tried and tested this theory and it didn't work out? Yeah, because his slogan really this time is this time no more Mr. Nice Guy. For one thing, he had a whole group of people around him who restrained him, all of whom, by the way, think he's a menace. And, and to jump ahead, Andrew, one of the real serious political malpractice acts of both DeSantis and Haley is not to summon all of these people who served in the highest levels of the Trump administration, Secretary, two secretaries of defense, attorney general, two national security council heads, the secretary of state, all of whom say this guy is an idiot and a danger, right? So the fact that, that pro-Trump folks out there have already built a kind of battle plan for 2025, here's how we're going to make the civil service more of a function of the president. Here's how we're going to go after people. And you have people like Steve Bannon, who is also a guy who half jokes and half doesn't, saying, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to go after the people who tried to hurt us. So when people, when people uh, say, well, look, we had four years and we, we survived it, the Republican Party is much more supportive of Trump. I don't think you're going to see anybody pushing back on the Republican side in the Congress. And there used to be senators, you know, and congressmen and women. They're all gone, pretty much. There's almost no voice in the Congress among his party who will say, no, no, don't do this. Or I think of someone like Mike Lee, whose who's long history was of an, an, a constitutional stickler. I mean, someone right. who who went out of his way to defend mm-hmm. constitutional norms and procedures, even when they seemed rather esoteric. I mean, he was, he was, and and it mm-hmm. seemed like a true believer on that front. And yet he mm-hmm. is now. This is now. Is this just political reality? They just they just see their own voters being enthralled with Trump. And I they think don't it's want a combination be- of things. Part of it is, I think, genuine fear. I really do think there are people in the Congress who would have voted to impeach Trump and they were afraid that there, you know, there'd be threatening phone calls and they'd be uh, doxxed and their their kids would be threatened. I think that was part of it. The other part of it is, I think, a kind of cognitive dissonance where at the same time they know he's he's a less than ideal president. And they say, well, you know what? But it's it's our party. That's the big excuse. I, I support the nominee of my party. Bill Barr has said any one number of times, at least recently, how, what a danger Trump is. It's, well, you know, but it's a binary choice and I'll support if he's a nominee. Chris Sununu said the same thing. Um, I think Chris Christie, which, no, Chris Christie did not say that, right? He did not. I, I don't mean Christie. I mean Sununu. No, you did say, I know you said Sununu. I'm just yeah. thinking, no, you said Sununu. I'm, I said Christie and I was like, I can't remember. I think he will not, he would not vote for him, right? He was not going to support him. Christie's one of the people. He says that, well, he, he says I won't vote for either. So you, okay. you've got – I don't think there's a unified th- field theory. There are libraries now full of books trying to explain Trump. And I think it's kind of a little like the blind man with the elephant. I mean I think a lot of different people have a piece of it. But clearly one of the underlying elements is the profound distrust of all institutions that enables people to be for Trump. You know, so that Somebody puts out a report that Trump's whole business career was fueled by his father's millions. Fake news. That was one of the brilliant things Trump did. He told Leslie Stahl right at the beginning, I'm, I'm going after you guys so that when you write bad things about me, my people won't believe it. And the degree to which people now don't believe it has metastasized. The piece in Today's Times by Maggie Haberman and Mr. I don't mean to 
butcher's name, Flagenheimer. The, dif the difference between how Republicans regard Trump, regarded Trump on January 6, 21 and now is mind-boggling. So it's let's, one let's, let's take that particular period because there was a moment, well, let's say January 7th, 2021, when, when there was a really serious sense among many Republicans that he that this had gone way too far, this violence, the takeover, the attempt to, the attempt to yeah. impede at least. Yeah. And yet they have talked themselves into the idea that this was actually never a serious bid to change the outcome of the election. It was kind of a, a theater, as it were, that this was a riot, not a, not a genuine. And to some extent, let's, let's, let's play this out. Not completely wrong, right? The, the military wasn't about to step in and prevent Biden becoming president. No, but that's what Michael Flynn asked him to do. Right. And you did have people in that Oval Office meeting saying, you're not going to do that. My point about this, Andrew, and that's a really good place to stop for a minute, is if Trump's the president next time, there's not going to be anybody in the Oval Office saying you can't do this. Right. That's why the second term is so much more dangerous than the first. You're not going to have all those assistant AG saying, we're all going to quit if you make Jeffrey Clark the attorney general. You, Michael Flynn is nuts. You can't send the military. They've already talked about, you know, on inauguration day, if there's a, if there are mass protests, they'll invoke the Insurrection Act. And right. So those, that's, those, those are extraordinary measures which they're they are promising. So what has led us to tolerate this? What has led us to become acquiescent to it? What, it it's, a, it's a big question because, you know, we, as you said, in the past, people like Long, people like McCarthy, you know, they, were, they had a very strong base, but it wasn't, it was, you know, maybe 20% of the country, 25% of the country. This is 40% plus and yeah. seems to be resilient in a way that they were not. Well, Huey Long got assassinated. We'll never know. That's a... Right. Who knows? We, okay. I don't think he would have unseated Roosevelt, but there was a threat there. But as I said, you know, in, in the past, think about just a couple of examples. McCarthy and Watergate. In both cases, the engine of the, of, of, that brought those, those incidents down were the, his own, the, own, the party of the people doing it. It was Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, and it was a Republican senator named Ralph Flanders and Margaret Chase Smith, the New Englanders are particularly good at this, who said, who drew the line with McCarthy. You know, it wasn't just long before Edward R. Murrow's famous See It Now broadcast. In the case of Watergate, you know, it was a conservative judge, John Sirica. It, were the mem it was the members of the, of the ultimately, a, the Senate Special Committee and the House Judiciary Committee, I think half a dozen Republicans. And at the end, famously, Barry Goldwater and some House Republican leaders went up to the White House and said to Nixon, you're done. So if you flip it, if, if in, during Watergate there had been a Republican majority in Congress and a Fox News, you know, because the, the press was virtually united in saying Nixon had to go. He, he was right about that. If you flip this, the reality, I don't think Nixon ever, under those circumstances, Nixon doesn't leave. And, and I, one of the frustrating things for me when I read the really anti-Trump people who for eight years have been figuring out, oh, it's finished now. He's done. You know, it's, it's been one of the more pathetic miscalculations politically that I've seen, they just never plugged in the reality that you do not have, you did not have when Trump went on, began, a Democratic Congress, and you, and you did not have 
a unified press that was holding Trump's feet to the fire. You know, Isn't the unified press partly what has driven and propelled Trump? I mean, if I if I think of it, I think that, that, that Trump hasn't made any new arguments really in the last four years, except I was robbed. But people have remained more sympathetic to him than might otherwise because the Democrats have not really offered anything that really appeals to the, uh, the core voters that need to be appealed to, that this is the missing link, that in fact the Democrats had an opportunity in 2020 to go in and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to tackle immigration. We're going to do it the right way. This guy has overdone it. We're going to do it the right way and we're going to solve this. Or, or some measure in which the Democrats were able to signal to people they understood the frustrations behind Trump and were going to address them. Now, Biden, I think, has done that to some extent in as much as he was a, he's a no, moderate I, person and the infrastructure stuff. But to some extent, it seems to me that the resistance have made life a lot easier for Trump by, by not aggressively attempting to co-opt the issues. That that's a critically important point, and I would extend it beyond the four years. One of the, if I had to do the most simplistic explanation, for instance, for the flight of the working class that, that is not plugged in with racial grievances or racism per se, which is a big a part of it, because you also have to remember that black and brown working class people are moving more to Trump. Yeah. It's that there was a time for a fairly long period of time when the statement, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, was not a joke. In, you know, a generation or two ago, maybe it's now two generations, you know, people grew up with an administration that tried to confront the Depression, that with the help of World War II got us out of the Depression, that protected the rights of labor, that it created Social Security and then Medicare, and low interest loans for housing. And so you know, there, and rural electrification and all of that stuff. So it actually made sense to say the Democratic Party is the party that wants to do something. Now, if you go back, I don't know when, where you want to start, but whether it's the financial crisis of, of 2008, which left millions of people far worse off than they were, or whether or not, for whoever is to blame, the root dreams or the root hopes of a middle class I want to be able to afford a house. I want to be able to send my kid to college. I want to be able to pay for my health care. All of those things, whatever the macro numbers are now about inflation and unemployment, are really much worse than they were. You know, I'm, my children and now grandchildren and those of my friends, are very few of them are going to be able to aspire to the kinds of, of, of life that we have. It's just a fact. So that, you know, it may... It may not be enough to explain why people will embrace an authoritarian. But, but the, that fact and the fact that on, on, on an issue like immigration and, and crime, which bedeviled the Democratic Party at least since the 60s, there doesn't seem to be the kind of root understanding that, for instance, for all of his flaws, Bill Clinton had. About or how Bobby or Bobby Kennedy had. I mean, well, to go back to Bobby, who's an interesting character, a very interesting character, because he yeah. was not, he was not a stereotypical left liberal. He had no, lots he was, of. He, tell tell us about him. Well, a couple of examples. One was that when he ran in '68, crime had been on a vertiginous rise, violent right. crime. It doubled and doubled again. 
And in his campaign, he would say, you know, we can't have summer after summer of lawlessness. I was chief law enforcement officer of the United States. The New York Times editorial page, which is like a kind of, it should be preserved in amber. Oh, he's running to the right. Ronald Reagan said he sounds like me. Well, you know, one of the things I think that Kennedy understood was not just the politics of it, but, you know, who does crime hurt most? It ain't the people living where the New York Times editorial board lives, behind Gates or Vorman. You know, you when crime dropped in New York, the principal beneficiaries were the poor, the black and the brown. Uh, so he understood that. And he also made a whole series of speeches. I didn't write any of them, by the way, um, about the danger of an oversized government bureaucracy too far from the people. He thought public housing was a disaster. The first day I worked for him, he had me come with him to a committee meeting looking at education money, what was happening to it. And he said, you know, when I go into the ghetto, the two things people hate most are the public school system and the public welfare system. Hmm. Now, you know, today the Democratic Party is not a wholly owned subsidiary, but, you know, the teachers unions play a dis a huge role in that. Your, your one-time guest and buddy and my buddy Joe Klein is like, bangs on this like a drum. So if you don't have a, a spokesperson for the party that understands at the root issues like that or immigration, one of the questions that I, if I were on a debate panel, you know, with some of these Democrats, like back in 2020, I'd say, you all say you're not for open borders. Tell me specifically what steps you think is appropriate for the government to take in refusing entry to whatever you want to call them, undocumented, unauthorized illegals. What would you do? And to some extent, the Democratic Party is, you know, is a prisoner, not of the base of Latinos, because those, you know, most of them are here, who are here illegally or the descendants of those. They are not big fans of, of, un, of unlimited immigration. But the the establishment part is, you know. I would and say so the I following, that, Jeff. I, I think they've gone more than that. They actually were asked that in the primaries of 2020. And they said we were going to decriminalize entry into the United States. We're going to yeah, make it Biden a citizen. Was the only one, the yeah, only one who was, didn't. Yeah. And in fact, they went out of their way, essentially, to say okay. our job is to – they went further than that. They didn't only just say we're not going to do it. They actually wanted to make it easier, and they have made it easier. And, and that just flies in the face of most people's deep sense of, well, citizens come first, immigrants come second. And mm -hmm. we, we like immigrants, but there's a distinction here, and there should be a legal process. And the Democrats – and Biden has nothing to say to that. Equally, I would say on race – it's that is that in 2020 and afterwards, the Democrats didn't just say, no, we're not going to indulge in cry anti-crime. They actually said we want to abolish prisons, defund the police. Well, that's, least, uh, in, in no, fairness, not all of them, not all of them, but definitely the message coming from the base yeah. of the Democratic Party, not Biden, I know. But nonetheless, a huge emphasis, especially in the big cities, on, ex my, on actually making things being, easier for crime. Yeah. And that was a time when Biden needed to push back very hard. He did say... Frequently, we're not going to defund the police. We want more of them. But that's a case where the loudest voices get heard the most. Yeah. I, it's kind of, if you want to measure the, where we've come, if you look at the State of the Union speech of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, yes, both of them have very tough language about the need to, to prevent, and they call them illegal immigrants, from coming into, the, into this country. 
Uh, today, you know, if they made that speech at a Democratic gathering, they might be booed. My and, point is that Trump is where he is because the Democrats have refused to really counter him on the policy measures which have sustained his rise. Now, he also is, a, I think, an under-recognized demagogue in the sense that he's really oh, yeah. good at it. And he's, again, he's you very, have to... People have, People are writing about that now and some have written about this even eight years ago, that he's a great, skilled entertainer. You know, people come to those people. Somebody wrote this. It wasn't my insight. Paraphrase that people come to Trump's rallies the way Rolling Stones fans insist that they play satisfaction. You know, they want to hear Trump's greatest hits. Now, apparently... He still has the tendency to drive his audience away because he goes on talking for 90 minutes. Because, But he does have that ability. Way back in the end of 2015, I remember this. I was on Meet the Press and Chuck Todd said he'd just come back from a Trump rally somewhere in the Midwest. And people had waited online for hours. And that was the time when people were saying, well, people like Trump, but they won't vote for him. And Chuck Todd said quite pressingly said, so they're going to wait eight hours to hear him and they're not going to show up and vote for him? Is that what you think is going on? Because the underestimation of him, look, I can speak to this to some extent personally. I wrote pretty early that people had to be, people had to watch out for Trump because he was giving his audience something that they didn't have, the notion they could do something radically different. They could upend the, the, the apple cart. And sometimes voters like that. I wrote, I don't know how many pieces about how weak a candidate Hillary Clinton was, but I never wrote, by the way, look out, Trump could win this thing. I never got, I never took that last step because it seemed to me insane. It is a matter of some pride that I did say he's going to win. And because, mainly because I could see his talent, which was very raw, but also because I knew Hillary was just, just yeah. not ever going to be president of the United States. And, right. and there was a level of, of, of resistance. But also, you know, the other moment I was thinking about where Trump broke through, it was when in the early primary debates of 2016, when the Iraq war came up. And, and Jeb Bush said the fatuous statement, my brother kept us safe. <laughs> and of course, Trump, I think, said something like, no, he didn't. And the Iraq war was a disaster. We should yeah. never have done it. And there was a moment there when suddenly something had been said, which is quite obviously true, that had never been really allowed to be absorbed, right. that suddenly broke through. And you suddenly, and yeah. that the foreign policy stuff is also salient here. You know, Biden is now, you know, committed to two wars that, that are extraordinarily complex and not likely to have a swift resolution, right? I mean, you have one in Ukraine and now one in Gaza. Trump's appeal will be, I'm going to divide Ukraine, give it to Putin, get all this over with. And I don't know what his position is going to be on Gaza. He has in his own, some of office, was all, it was all absurdly pro-Israel. I, I say absurdly, but it's it, to at fault. Um, maybe he could shift. Although, but the sense that, that we're back where we started, we're back with these wars abroad, we're back with this this responsibility for everything in the world. Trump Trump sounds refreshing in as much as he says, no, we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. One of the shocks of my life in 2016 was when my old mentor in Bobby Kennedy's office, Adam Walensky, one of the smartest people I've ever met, wrote a all-out endorsement of Trump. And it was mostly based on he's the only guy who, who will stand up and say, we're not going to fight these dumb wars anymore. And then you think, yeah, I still think Adam was 
wrong. But you think back to what made Barack Obama president, and it was the single big issue he differed with Hillary Clinton on was the Iraq war, which, by the way, was easy for him to do because he was a state senator and never had a vote on it. But in one of his speeches, Barack Obama said, I'm not against all wars. I'm against stupid wars. And that almost sounds Trumpian. Trumpian Trump loves the word stupid. Uh, it may be a case of identification, but whatever it is, you know, that that notion, which is linked, Andrew, he said going off on a hope, not a tangent, is linked to a broader issue, which is the 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 death of expertise as an asset. You know, and one of the arguments. Yeah, that's partly because we've learned better. I mean, we the expertise that told us there is no sectarianism in Iraq. They'll all get along afterwards. They're just waiting to be Democrats. The expertise that said we can shut down schools for year, two years, and there won't yeah. be any real hard yeah. nothing. The, the expertise that said that we don't have to push lots of money in the economy after 2008, even though we probably did. The expertise that overdid the stimulus in, in 2022. Oh, and that's where you get, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, is met by the answer, you know, uh, that's like I'll respect you in the morning. That's just probably not something to put a lot of faith in. And it yes. also means that somebody with no experience, it, it, you know, we this, here's a strain that does go back. It's, it's very different, but you see the link. One of the reasons Ross Perot got 19 percent of the vote at a right. time when things were pretty good was because already there was a feeling of, you know, he's he's not been part of the process. One of the great responses I ever heard in a debate was when he was asked about experience right at the get go. And he said, that's right. I've had no experience running up at eight trillion. Now, you multiply that geometrically. And when Trump comes in and says, and people say, well, you've never run the government. You've never had a, you know, any involvement with civics. The answer is not, oh, dear, but damn right. Also, when they say it's corrupt, he says, damn right, I know, because I corrupted it. I, I gave them money and yeah. they did what I wanted. Yeah, there's that. So I know how to resolve the system. Tell me, because this, this, I'm going on a bit of a tangent myself here, but, but Bobby Kennedy Jr. Is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a candidate in this election. He's doing a lot better than most people imagined. How do you think of him in terms of his father's son? Is there, are there any things that are similar or is he, is he just a bonkers showboater? At this point, I don't see much of a resemblance. I, when I, Hi there. I this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion 
of the previous week's Dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.